so that's good. Okay, so you guys, that thing was in that article that I sent you. You made it seem like it was like this massive part of it. Well, it's... But it was like a paragraph. Yeah, but it's, but it's like the deep idea, which is the idea that ultimately comes from Ainsley. So did you get to read Money's MacGuffin? Did you like it? Hyperbolic discounting, yeah. So that's what we were talking about a little bit yesterday, the difference between exponential discounting and hyperbolic discounting. And if you do the math, could people follow the math? Who could follow the math? <laughs> Joseph, could well, you follow uh, the math? Was there like heavy math in there? No, but the, what's the difference between hyperbolic disc? No, but in general, there, no, there's light math in there, right? So that's why I'm wondering if people could follow the math. There are two basic ideas that he's using and that are central to Ainsley's thinking. And one is the idea of hyperbolic discounting versus exponential discounting, which I realized even as I was saying it yesterday, I, gave, I was slightly misleading about, but I didn't want to do the figuring it, figuring it out yesterday. But if you exponentially discount, let's say, something that's worth $1,000 in five years, and you're exponentially discounting it by 10% a year, then it would be worth, you would pay $900 um, in, it would be worth $900 in four years, and it would be worth 10% less than $900 in three years, so it would be, um, I mean $9,000, did I say 1000 No, 900 so it would be um, $810 in three years, and then you discount it by 8.1, um, so it would be um, 700 and $29 in two years and so on. So that's what makes it exponential discounting. As I said yesterday, it's the, um, just the same thing as compound interest but going in the other direction. So, if you, so it's the um, figuring out what you would pay now, um, like buying a savings bond for something that where interest compounds over time. So you look at the face value and when that face value um, comes due, and then you discount a, the same percentage each unit of time. So that what you're doing is you have a consistent discounting rate. Hyperbolic, do people remember what hyperboles are? What are they? What's their equation? Oh, I thought we, never mind. I, <laughs> I thought we were talking about like the literary hyperbole. No. Well, they, they actually are similar. Um, so, it's like an exaggeration, so maybe it's Yeah, no, so what does a hyperbolic curve look like? Anyone remember? Anyone remember the equation on a coordinate system? Wait, you're doing calculus in econ? Yeah, but like the words get messed up. <laughs> like parabola? Like, no, that, parabola doesn't do the gook part. A parabola is just... Yeah, so the thing about, so the, the equation for uh, hyperbola is x times y equals a constant, right? Do you remember that from eighth grade? <laughs> All right, do you remember what an asymptote is? Yes. The line that it approaches but never touches. Yes, yeah, that's the one that, yeah, that would be the part. Um, so a parabola will touch, um, um, but I have per so um, y equals x squared, that's a parabolic curve. Um, any exponential curve is a parabolic curve. Um, 
A hyperbolic curve is one where the, that x, if you have x times y equals 1, then if x and y are, if x is 1, what's y? Good. Oh, God, your math is so fast. Yes, if x times y equals 1, and x is 1, so we have 1 times y equals 1, so let's devote both sides by 1, and you cross out the 1, and then you get y equals 1 over 1, and then you go 1 times y equals 1. What? No. No, no, I'm just reminding you of how to do algebra with a very sim simple um, mental equation. So if x times y equals 1 in a hyperbolic curve, if x times y equals 1, then x is 1 and y is 1. If x times, um, um, if x is 2, y is <laughs> 2 times what, e 2 times what equals 1? 0.5. Good, 0 0.5, right. If x is 3, it's 1 third. If x is 4, it's um, one fourth, etc. If x is a million, one million, right. So what you can see happening, just picture this in your head, is that we are we're starting with x times y equals one, and as we bring y from one t to zero, that is, we're making y smaller and smaller. So we cut it in half. So y is approaching zero, right? It's getting closer and closer to zero, but it started out at one, so it doesn't have a big step to get to zero. So first we cut it in half, and then x equals two. Then we cut y, the space from one to zero. We now make it the space from one quarter to zero, and x equals four. We make it the space from one tenth to zero, and x equals ten. Good, nice, stay with me here. We make it from one millionth to zero. So y has now gone <coughs> most of the way, but not all of the way, from one to zero. It's not a big distance from one to zero. So y has gone most of the way. There's only a millionth left for it to get to zero. What is x equal? What times one over a million equals one? A million. Okay, so the point is that for y to get from one to zero, y is actually never going to get all the way to zero. Because the closer it gets to zero, the higher x is. And if y actually equaled zero, what would x have to be? What times zero equals one? OK, this is, remember how you can't divide by zero? Do you know why? Why can't you divide by zero? Do you know why it's undefined? <laughs> you can't. If I couldn't take this piece of paper and rip it into zero parts. Okay. Like just logically. All right. Um, you can't rip it in zero parts. And if you had, remember <laughs> that the here. Remember the way um, equations work. Is the chalk? Oh, the chalk has been ripped yeah. into zero. Oh, thank you. See, you can't do it. So, if you have. Let's say 3 over 0 equals x. Then we'll cross multiply. So we will say that 0, that 3 equals, remember how to cross multiply? Yeah. Okay, good. We'll say it's x over 1, just to make it easy. So 3 times 1 equals 3, right? And what would that equal? 0. Yeah. 0 times x. 
but zero times any number is zero. So the reason you can't divide by, divide by zero is that you would get this as a result, three equals zero. So you can't divide by zero because then you get um, something that is logically impossible. So you can't say how many times do you have to multiply something by zero. Um, see, I want that bad. Uh, we can go all the way towards a full class. Um, how many times do you have to multiply something by zero to make it something non-zero? And the answer is, no matter how many times, it's not going to equal something non-zero. Even in an infinite number of times, it won't equal something non-zero. Like, how many infinities of people are there in this room now? Zero. So that is why you can't do that. So if you have x times y equals 1, then what you have is start with y equals 1 and x equals 1. And say I want to know what happens as y gets smaller and smaller. And how small can y get before it crosses over into negative numbers? And the answer is only to 0. But if it got all the way to 0, then you would have x equals 1 over 0, which it can't. But if it got to be very, very tiny, but not all the way to 0, like 1 in a million, then you would have x equals 1 over 10 to the 6th, which equals, actually, x over 10 to the 6th, which equals 10 to the 6th. That is a million. So, the smaller y gets, and it's not going very far, the larger x gets. And so the place that it won't touch is the y-axis, because if y gets to 0, then we're at the y-axis. Do you remember all this? And x would just be undefined. But the closer you get to the y-axis, the higher x gets. So if you look at a diagram, A parabola y equals x squared looks like that. A hyperbole, a hyperbola looks like that. At first glance, actually it doesn't look like that, but at any rate, at first glance um, they look somewhat like <coughs> each other. Um, Sorry, I got the parabola wrong. But at first glance, they look somewhat like each other, at least in various portions. So that hyperbolic discounting and, and exponential discounting, or parabolic discounting, look similar to each other if you look at certain parts of the curve. But when you get close to the axes, when you get close to the x and the y axis, hyper, become, hyperbolas become much steeper than parabolas do. And that means that if you're looking, what Ainsley is talking about is if you're looking at a very short-term gain versus a very long-term gain, you may discount the long-term gain as though the discounting is happening hyperbolically. And you may discount it way too much. You may say that to wait another second for something that, or to, wait, to, to have a choice between getting something in a second and something in an hour is like the difference between x times y equals 1 
and x times y equals 3,600. That is, if you wait, you're not waiting an hour, you're only waiting a second, and suddenly you're treating the value of only waiting a second as 3,600 times the value of waiting an hour. And so if you do that, you're engaged in hyperbolic discounting. You are treating, you're near the edge of the, um, of the hyperbola, and therefore the value that you're putting on not waiting versus the value that you're putting on waiting become gigantically distorted. Yeah. So I get that, like, obviously the extremes have that effect. Yeah. But where is time equals zero? So it's is not... it all the way at the top or is it at one, one? No, time equals zero would be all the way at the top. So it's when y equals zero. If y is the time that you have to wait and x is what you would pay, um, then are you shaking your head? Well, you are shaking your head. Are you shaking your head in, in disagreement? No, no, I was just thinking about like some aspect of the curve that I really wanted to, I couldn't get my head around. I was silly, I shouldn't have. Just the way that the, like, the hyperbolic curve actually, I'm sorry, this is really like, you know, sort of like but, but it, it, it's a steep purple, but then it, its tail is higher. Yeah. And it just like reminded me of some of my like irrationality because yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to. It's, it's both quick discounting, but then not giving up when you should give up as well. And that's what I was shaking my head at. It's yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's the intertemporal bargaining part, but that's, we'll get to that. Um, so, but the point there is, yeah, that if you have to wait an hour, then um, you'll say that it's worth... Um, that waiting an hour and um, getting an hour's worth, you know, getting your minimum wage after you wait an hour is worth it. Um, and that would be something like 1-1. One, one. But if you, what would you pay not to have to work at all? And, the, you know, just, just think about answers that you might give is something like, um, let's say someone is offering you $100 an hour to do something, but it's really kind of yucky. And so what you might say is, okay, $100 if I do this for an hour, um, $50 if I do it for half an hour, $25 if I do it for a quarter of an hour, they're all equivalent. <coughs> but let's say that it's, um, well, I mean, Ainsley's examples are better, but, but let's put it another way. Um, you could pay $100 not to do this really crappy thing that you have to do for an hour. And if you paid $100, you wouldn't have to do it um, for an hour. Um, you would be relieved of the task of doing it for an hour. And let's say that's the market clearing price. What does that mean, market clearing? Ainsley uses that term too. Supply and demand are equal. Yeah, when supply and demand are equal, then the market clears. That is, everyone sells what they have, and everyone buys what's for sale, and everyone's happy. So market clearing price is the ideal price, and it's what markets would ideally set. So let's say the market clearing price is um, that at $100, it's a really yucky task. You have to clean a toilet. You have to clean your, um, the toilet in your hall. Um, you're the one who has to do it. And uh, you could get out of it at, if you pay $100. Um, then you don't have to do it. But the $100, um, and $100 is basically where you think that you'll flip a coin. 
pay $100 and not have to clean the toilet or clean the toilet and save the $100, so you'll flip a coin. And that would be the market clearing price. Either way, it's equal to you. Either way, you have to give something up, either your sense of um, not, um, not uh, interacting with cooties or $100. You have to give one or the other of those things up. So then let's say that what that should mean is that if you are doing 12 minutes of toilet cleaning versus an hour of toilet cleaning, then maybe you would pay $20 not to do 12 minutes of toilet cleaning. Now let's say that you are offered one minute of toilet cleaning or you can pay um, 1 60th of $20 um, not to clean the toilet, pretty much everyone is going to pay the 1 60th of $20. That is better to pay um, one, uh, better not to even do one minute of dealing with cooties and um, pay 20 over $60 um, or um, a third of a dollar. You'd much rather pay the 33 cents than clean the toilet for a minute. So you're inconsistent. Do you all agree with that? That if it's 33 cents or clean a yucky toilet for a minute, you would definitely just pay the 33 cents. But if it's a, if it's $100 or clean the toilet for an hour, you would um, you might clean the toilet. <coughs> So you're not valuing the minute as 1 60th of an hour. That's the point. You're valuing one minute as somehow much more valuable in terms of time than you're valuing 60 minutes. And so you don't have, so you don't have a predictably consistent relationship to time. Time isn't scaling up consistently for you. And that's does everyone, does everyone get the basic idea? You don't have to get the details, and I screwed up the numbers a little bit anyhow. But do you get the basic idea that you're not valuing time consistently? There was an article actually in the Times. No, it came out, I guess, a couple of months ago, but Paul Krugman um, linked to it in the Times yesterday. How much, you know they're doing congestion pricing in New York City? And um, one reason they're doing it is they worked out the average cost that a car in Midtown in New York City costs spread over everyone who's paying the cost. Do you know what a car on a weekday in New York between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., how much it costs to drive a car um, per hour to have a car downtown and moving per hour between um, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m.? $160 an hour. That's why they're doing congestion pricing because it costs $160 an hour. Every car that goes into New York City costs $160 an hour. Congestion pricing? Congestion pricing is when there's a lot of traffic. It's, it's like Uber, but for cities. Um, when there's a lot of traffic, they're going to have tolls. And if you drive into, you know, with, they'll read your license plate or they'll um, do your easy pass. And if you drive below 59th Street um, during high congestion times, you'll be charged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, what is, like, <coughs> the cost of that? Is that, like, what the gas price would be, or, like, 
parking? Like what? What it's there. Well, so they actually figured it. They they actually did a really sweet way of figuring out all those things, but the main thing is how much time people get stuck in traffic, um, and the more cars there are, the longer you get stuck in traffic, and um, how much time, what you would be paid for that time if you were working rather than stuck in traffic. So basically, every car adds $160 of wasted time plus wasted gas because if you're stuck in traffic, you're burning gas faster, um, plus wear and tear on the streets and so on. Every extra car costs the city, that is the people of the city, not the city itself, but the people in the city, the community, $160. So if there are you know, um, 16,000 cars in downtown New York City and you drive in, you're costing those 16,000 cars a total of $160. So you're only costing them a dime each for the time that you've spent there um, for an hour. So they're paying another dime because you, everyone is paying another dime because you're in there. But then if you figure out that each one of those $16,000 is costing every other car a dime each, then it's a whole lot of money. So the idea of congestion pricing is that the whole community is paying a whole lot of money. You don't mind the dime, but you would mind it if it were scaled up. And from the point of view of the city, they're scaling it up. And they're looking at how much money every added car adds to um, what people in the city are, um, are opportunity costs mainly. Um, how much time they're wasting stuck in traffic and how much each additional car adds to how much time they're wasting. So you may think, one more car, what's the big deal? And the answer is it's not a big deal. But if you multiply all the one more cars, it is a big deal. And so the same thing is our attitude towards time in our own lives. That is that if something is, a, is very short term, if it's a short-term reward or a short-term punishment, we'll pay a lot more than a scaled-up version of the same thing. So you'll do something um, unpleasant for a lot of money that takes a lot of time, but you won't do something unpleasant for a little bit of money that takes a little bit of time, which means that you're not treating time and money consistently. If you think a minimum, if you think that, you know, if you work for an hourly wage, then what you're doing is officially you're treating time as though it's money. You are treating time as worth a certain amount of money, and you're doing it consistently. You have a 40-hour week at $15 an hour, and you're making $600. You have a $20 week at $15, um, $15 an hour, and you're making $300. And um, supposedly that's fair either way because you're getting $15 for every hour that you work. But we don't treat it that way. We treat, we'll give up labor, which is unpleasant, short-term for a little bit of money. We're willing to pay a little bit of money not to do short-term labor, but even if we had it, we wouldn't pay a lot of money not to do long-term labor. So the point is that market clearing at an hour is different from market clearing at a minute, and inconsistently different. And the curve that explains this, the curve of our attitudes that explains this, is a hyperbolic one. So that a way to put this is to say that to go from an hour to half an hour um, only doubles 
the x part. So if you say x times y equals 1, then x times half of y equals 2, and that's only doubling it, which makes sense. But to go from an hour to a minute, suddenly the x is worth 60 times as much to save 29 minutes. Does that make sense to people? If you go from an hour to half an hour, you save 30 minutes, and you are willing to pay twice as much to save that 30 minutes. So you may pay a certain amount to save yourself an hour. You'll pay twice as much. Um, you, you're, willing, you're willing to take a certain amount for an hour, twice as much if you um, get rid of half of that hour. If you then do another, not even half an hour, but another 29 minutes, the first half hour is worth um, $10 to you, say. The next half hour seems to be worth 10 times as much. And so that explains why you wouldn't pay 33 cents, or you would pay 33 cents to avoid a minute's worth of toilet cleaning, although you might not pay $100 to avoid an hour's worth of toilet cleaning. <coughs> and what that means is that first minute is much more valuable to you than the 60 minutes in an hour. You're not treating each minute consistently. Does that work? Do people basically get that? And that's what we were talking about yesterday when we were talking about would you wait, would you take $100 now or $105 next week, is the, for most people, one week versus right now isn't worth the $5 waiting a week. But for most people, waiting a week a year from now versus um, getting the $100 a week earlier a year from now is worth the extra wait. So you're treating a week in the future as much less valuable to you than you're treating a week starting right now in the same way that you're treating the last minute of cleaning a toilet for an hour as much less valuable to you, much less worth paying your way out of than paying your way out of the first minute of cleaning a toilet at all. So that's hyperbolic discounting. So that is, I don't know, I, th I feel like it's a, a, a too complicated a way of saying something that is, that is clearer and simpler if you just consider do you take the money now or do you wait a week for a little bit more money, much higher than the interest rates <coughs> banks are paying, but still you have to wait a week versus do you take the money 52 weeks from now or do you wait 53 weeks to get what is then going to be 20% more money if you just wait, or 5% more money if you just wait one more week. And most, as, as we saw yesterday, most people will take the $100 now versus $105 a week from now. People who weren't here yesterday, what would you do? Ian, what would you do? I offer you 100, so here's the question. I offer you $100 right now, or if you wait a week, I'll give you 105. I'll take the 105. You will, okay. Um, so you're in the minority. It works out to be about 10% in this class. It's higher than 10%. We'll wait the week. Um, most people, however, who won't wait the week will wait a week if they're given a choice between $100 a year from now or $105 a year plus a week from now. Again, the importance of that being 
that they are saying to their future self, future self, one year from now, I am telling you, you can't have $100 on a day that you might otherwise have it. You will say, darn, I could have had $100 today when you wake up. But no, I've already decided you're not going to get $100 today. You're going to have to wait another week. And so you'll have to wait. You'll get the $105. So you bind your future self that way. And that everyone will do that. One, maybe one other way of putting it would be to say, this, so here's a, here's a little um, interesting logical puzzle, which I think is equivalent. So a person is condemned to death, and part of the cruel and unusual punishment that this person is um, condemned to experience is existential angst about when he will be executed. So the cruel and unusual judge, let's call him Neer, Neil Gorse, Gorse, let's call him Neil Gorse, um, says, okay, you'll be hanged at noon some day in the next week, but you won't know in advance what day it is. So what does that mean? So sometime in the next seven days, starting tomorrow, you'll be hanged at noon, but you don't know what day it is. Well, so that's the anxiety. Like, you wake up, am I going to be hanged today? I don't know. Huh. Then noon passes, and you think, okay, not today. So, but maybe tomorrow, so you feel anxiety about it again. So it's going to be sometime in the next week. So what day can't it be if it's going to be sometime in the next week? Why not? Yeah, so then you would know. And the whole point is that you're not supposed to know what day you're going to be hanged. So it can't be a week from today, because then you would know. You would have 24 hours of knowing. Mm -hmm. So if it can't be seven days from now, what's the last day it could be? But wouldn't the logic just be extended? Yeah. So, it can't, so this is just like the, the .7 game. If it can't be seven days from now, it can't be six days from now. Because you know it can't be seven days from now, so the last day it could possibly be is six days from now. But that would mean that you would know five days from now that you would be hanged the next day. And so it couldn't be six days from now. Does that make sense to everyone? And if it can't be six days from now, then it can't be five days from now. And if it can't be five days from now, it can't be four days. So there's no day that you could be hanged. Because the only day that you could be hanged is tomorrow. But then you would know that, so it can't be tomorrow either. OK, does that make sense to people? So um, philosophers of logic actually find this a really interesting question because suddenly it reverses again. But if that's true, then you actually don't know what day you're going to be hanged. So it could be any of those days. But it really couldn't be the last day. It just couldn't. And so you do the loop again, and it loops endlessly. OK, same with the toilet cleaning example. What you're basically saying is, I would clean the toilet for $101, let's say, but I wouldn't clean it for um, $101 for an hour, but I wouldn't clean it for $0.33 cents a minute. Um, and what that means is that after 59 minutes, if I could stop after 59 minutes instead of doing the full hour, I'd pay $0.33 cents not to do that last minute, because I've already shown 
that I would pay 33 cents not to do it for a minute. So in 59 minutes, I would be at the point where I could either clean a disgusting toilet, one more disgusting toilet, or I could stop and pay 33 cents, I would pay 33 cents. But what that means is that after 58 minutes, if I could stop and not clean the second to last disgusting toilet, then I would stop then. So there's never a minute that you wouldn't stop if you could. And yet, you would take the money to do the whole hour. And so you have inconsistent preferences. And that's a really crucial idea, is an idea of inconsistent preferences, where preferences are revealed by how much you're going to pay, um, which, is, which, is how, which, which is an economic idea for how you reveal preferences. Would you take this money? It's, it's the let's make a deal idea. Would you take this money, or do you want this dishwasher? Uh, which, is, which do you prefer, which is more valuable to you? So inconsistent preferences are bedevil economists, but they seem to have something really deep to do with human psychology. And so hyperbolic discounting is a way of measuring inconsistency in preferences. Why you would take $100 today, but why you would wait 53 weeks for $105 rather than 52 weeks for $100. It's going to be the same situation as today, but you choose inconsistently over time. Time makes us inconsistent. So in the lottery example, in the savings example, people, that article puts it in terms of weakness of will, that people can't stop themselves from frittering their money away. And because they can't stop themselves from frittering their money away, they can't save up money because they, if, if you got it, you spend it. If you have a little bit of money, it's really hard to save money when it's a long time before you're going to have enough money to buy the dishwasher or put down a down payment for the house or whatever. It's a long time before that happens. Um, but in the meantime, you could spend this money today for something fun. So people do. And then they never save. But with a lottery, what happens is they have no control of when they win. And because they have no control of when they win, they don't have a pile of money always tempting them. Even if they save it, the problem with saving is that, and I'm sure you guys have all experienced this, that you may be really, really diligent about saving. And yet, when you have $300, you decide you're going to get the iPad mini instead of saving up for the more virtuous, I don't know, encyclopedia you could have had or whatever. Um, so you could have saved up more money and used it for something more virtuous, but now you have enough money to blow. And so people, when they have enough money to blow, the temptation to blow that money is very, very strong. And therefore, saving in a way is the worst way that human beings have. And it's why it's so hard to save. It's the worst way that human beings have 
for saving money. Because the more money you have, the greater the temptation to go on a spree. You have enough money to go on a spree, go on a spree. After all, it's, you've been saving. It's not like you've been spending that money and having fun. Saving money is just not fun. But if you go on a spree, where are you going to be the next day? Exactly where you were when you were saving. That is not spending money and not having fun. And the fact that you're not spending money and not having fun won't change. You're putting $20 away every week, and now you have $400 because you've done it for 20 weeks, and you've been living a frugal life, and you have $400. Take it out on a spree, and you've had a gas. And then the next day, you're where you were before, not spending $20 that you could otherwise spend. So saving money is a constantly increasing temptation to spend money. Do you guys have that experience? Have you had that experience? Is anyone good at saving? <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Um, do, you do you find that you are um, unlike most of the people you know in being good at saving? As in, like, they're a good saver compared to other sa um, savers? Or no, compared to, compared to your friends. Oh, yeah, I'm a saver. Everyone else likes a little money. Yeah, okay. So that's the point. That's why you would wait. Are you a good saver? Not particularly. All right, but you'd still wait. Okay, that's interesting. Um, did you say you would wait? Um, there were three people who said they would wait. You were one of them? Yes, are you a good saver? No, all right. So, um, yeah, being a good saver is like the hardest thing um, that there is because the money is a constantly augmenting temptation to blow it. And the, the bigger the pile of money, the more the temptation to blow it. And the reason, again, for that temptation is that when you do blow it, it doesn't change your quality of life at all after you've blown it. Because if you're saving money, you're not having fun with it. Whereas if, and, um, if you don't have money, you're still not having fun with it. It's the same equal non-fun. Um, but in the meantime, you had a, um, a gaudy night. And so you did have fun that one night. So the temptation to blow money is huge, huge. However, if you buy lottery tickets every day, if you, if you play the numbers every day, then you're doing two things at once. You're having fun because you are buying a chance, a dream, a hope, a fantasy that you'll win the lottery, which is what everyone does. I remember the first time I bought a lottery ticket with some friends. They wanted to go to Aruba for <coughs> spring break, and they were convinced and convinced me that they'd win. It's like someone's got to win, and it would just be so perfect if we won. So we bought a lottery ticket at a um, lottery vendor in Brooklyn, and they were just so surprised not to win the next day. It was like, I was surprised by how surprised they were, but it was like, it has to happen. It's just right. So for 24 hours, they had this belief that they were going to win, and you know, part of them knew that it was a ridiculous belief, but another part of them thought the very fact that it was a ridiculous belief is what made it so good, 
because um, this ridiculously good thing was going to happen to them. And they just knew it was. And it didn't. So totally wonderful thing um, was going to happen. And against all the odds, which was going to make it even better. And so for the money that we spent, we got the possibility of winning, plus a really fun anticipation that we would win, the possibility of a fantasy with that we could elaborate, which is we're going to Aruba, that's going to be really great, um, and all of this for $5. So instead of putting that $5 away so that by the time we were my age, we could go to Aruba and really, really have fun because this is the funnest age in your life. You guys have no idea. Are you skeptical? Um, you're right to be skeptical. Um, what we did was we blew the $5 then, and then that was $5 less that we had. Um, however, lotteries as savings devices, and that's what that, um, this article is partly about, is that instead of blowing the money on Big Macs every day or instead of blowing the money on cigarettes every day or on lattes every day, you blow the money on something that is worth even less on the whole, which is a lottery ticket, because most of the time you don't get the $5 back. You've just spent it. What do you get for the $5? You get a belief that you might win, so that's fun. You get a fantasy, um, and that part is fun. You spend $5 to rent a video. Why not spend $5 to fantasize that you're going to win a million dollars? You could. You watch a video, all you get is the video. That's it. You spend $5 on a lottery ticket, you actually could win a million dollars, what with the second chances and all that. So for $5, you get a really cool fantasy, and... Not only that, but eventually you win some money. And when you win some money in the numbers rackets, part of what um, the Lottery Commission does and why they employ behavioral economists is to figure out the best way to tempt people to buy lottery tickets. But the simple version, which is the numbers racket, is that you're going to win a really tidy pile of money when you win. And you won't know when you win but when you win, it'll be a tidy pile of money. And so, in a sense, what you have done by, by playing the numbers is you have defeated a mechanism within yourself which is counterproductive. The counterproductive mechanism that you have defeated in yourself is the temptation to blow all the money that you've saved, a temptation that very few people resist. And how then do you resist it? Well, you could put it in a piggy bank, but everyone will break their piggy bank if they really want to spend the money. You could put it in a tax-free savings account, but the penalty for taking the money out early might be a penalty that you're willing to pay when you want to blow the money. So you have $100, but if you take it out early, you have to pay $20, so you only get $80. But still, you can do a spree for $80, sure. Why not? But you can't do anything about money that you've bet in the lottery. Once you've lost it, it's gone. You have no access to it, whatever. So 
How is that savings? Because if you keep playing, eventually you will win. And you won't win as much as you lost, but you will win. <coughs> and when you win, you'll have a pile of money. And then that will, have been, that will be a pile of money that you couldn't get yourself to save in any other way. So it is a really, it looks irrational, but it is actually a really rational way of dealing with your, of, with, with your own very natural human psychology, which is to blow money. So if you're like Joseph, don't play the numbers. But everyone else, if you give me a dollar, um, I will give you $600 back if the right three-digit combination comes up. So just see me after class. Yeah, proof. So if that's if that's like some kind of universal or semi-universal like, <coughs> urge, how mm -hmm. do you explain like lending? So under that like model, wouldn't everyone be a borrower? Yes. I mean, if everyone's a borrow borrower, then like interest rates would spike and it would get to a point where like obviously you're gonna run. But yeah. So remember, that's one of the things that Mandeville talks about, which is why. Why isn't everyone a lender? And obviously the answer is that if everyone were a lender, there would be no one to borrow. Um, but you're saying, why isn't everyone a borrower? So that's a really good question. And the answer is something like this, that there are people who really do have a lot of self-control and who realize that this is, you know, they're the people who run the numbers. They are the ones who realize that this is a way that they can make money, and they do it through volume. So if you're lending money, what you're doing is you, you are um, doing, everyone is paying you for a minute, let's say, of relief. But for you, that comes to an hour of payment. So if 60 people pay you for a minute of relief, then you get an hour of payment for lending that money to these 60 people. And so it's not, um, I lend it to you and you and you and you, like Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz. You all know The Wizard of Oz is about money, right? Do people know this? I was a banker at the end of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, but you know Oz there means ounce. It's O-Z as short for ounce. And it's about the gold and silver standard, the yellow brick road is about the gold standard. No, it's, 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 um, it is an allegory. It was <coughs> what, what gave um, um, Baum the idea was that he was going to write a story about how bad the gold standard was and about fights between silver and gold. And he turned it into a fairy tale, and then people totally forgot that that's what it was really about. Um, so, but the point is that um, I can treat the public as a single person. And I can do the rational thing, which is offer the public an hour's worth of stuff, but each person in the public is buying a minute's worth from me. So it's, I'm reversing that situation. I'm a person thinking in terms of hours, but I'm selling minutes to the public. And that's how I make money, by lending money. Okay, we will definitely, absolutely talk about The Gambler on Monday. Read, if you haven't read it yet, read Money is MacGuffin. The other thing to think about there are, is the management of longing or the management of desire. That's the other thing Ainsley talks about. So pay attention to that. And if you haven't finished a gambler, finish it for Monday. Have a good weekend.
don't spend everything all at once. Is like what? Is uh, it, it should, what should happen is that e at each point, like your frugality must kind of be its own. Or what he says is to be to, like you need to have future scenarios that to get to data to have to deliver a reward in the present. Yeah. And I think that that's actually yes. so, like people are not sacrificing hedonistic play. Like whenever I've been able to, do it, I've I've actually enjoyed my frugality. Oh yeah, that's so, the point. Is that you have yeah. to fight, figure out ways to enjoy your frugality. Yeah. And one way is, you know, it's, it's banks giving you stickers. Um, and that helps you, look, I got a sticker, yay. Um, and so there have to be rewards for frugality. Um, and even watching your savings grow, you know, and keeping track of the money is such a reward. A, a definite present reward. Yeah, yeah, but that, if, if you can make that a present reward, that, you know, that's, that's the strategy, is making that itself into a present reward. So um, I like how we talked about honor like, earlier, right? About what? About honor. Yeah. Like, it's okay as long as, like, I have my honor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that goes back to the potlatch, right? Yeah. Good. Is that... What do I do with this? Oh, okay. What do you do with this? Um, you don't have ten courses. Oh, um, my... Oh, you're minoring. Okay, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. So you have one, two, three, four, and one. Yeah, that should work. Uh, what's 111? Uh, Post-colonial theory. Okay, um, 11A. We know. 